And open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew will be in chapter 28, really just the very end. Uh, The last verse of Matthew is our preaching text today. We'll read from verses 16 through 20 in a moment. Oh, there's that great question we ask ourselves to remind us of the good news of the gospel. What has God done for us that we could not do on our own? The good news begins with what God does for us. But here's another question I'd put to you that's as important and complementary. What has God made of us that we could not make of ourselves. Let's read together from Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 and following. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word for us this morning. Well, obedience can be a difficult subject Free yourself to be yourself. And of course, being yourself is just the best. That's the message that we hear all around us. And the message of the world, don't get, don't get too proud, Christian. Church is, comes from the human heart, which we share. We love that message. We're tempted by that message. Free yourself to be yourself. Authenticity. Self-expression. Self, self, self. All of this is set in contrast to obedience to some outside authority. Here Jesus is saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he's got all of it. And he's he's over the whole earth and every people and every, every person. And it's in the church where that authority is recognized and where we submit happily and obediently to the authority of Jesus. No, we don't think that what's inside us is is where all the action is at. God has made us in his image, and we are made precious, but we are sinful and sinners and corrupted, and we don't look inside us for an answer to the problem of sin and guilt and death. But obedience can be a difficult topic in the church as well, or at least one maybe we approach to with too much hesitation. In the first place, we aren't saved by works, right? We're saved by grace through faith. Uh, Amen. I hope you would say amen to that. We are not saved by our obedience. Uh, Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We, We live and speak and do from the overflow of our heart. And remember, what's inside us is, is sinful because we're born in Adam. So we're not justified by works or our obedience. And that's part of the good news. Part of the good news is that Jesus 
came and obeyed in our place. He did for us what we could not do. And that's good news. Also, we all wish we were better at obedience. We all stumble in many ways, James has said, and we are sinners still, and we do sin against our Lord. So it's just not fun to talk about that. And so sometimes we may be tempted to shy away from it. Or in emphasizing obedience, it feels like we're de-emphasizing grace. Well, is that the case? In other words, why are we talking about obedience in a sermon about baptism this morning? Here's a question to hold over you for a few minutes. And the answer is that baptism is not just about Jesus' death pictured in the water or our union with Jesus and his death pictured in the water. But it's a picture of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what it is. It's a sign, a covenant sign that pictures, portrays Jesus' death and resurrection. More than that, by union with Jesus through faith, our death with him and our resurrection with him. It is easy for us to focus on what was accomplished for us in his death to the neglect of what is accomplished in us by his resurrection. To focus on what he took for us, our sin and our guilt and our shame, to the neglect of what he makes of us, new creations. To focus on his punishment for our disobedience and to miss the power for our obedience. And in these ways, baptism is not just a sign of Jesus' death and resurrection or our death and resurrection with him. We have to press that or double-click on that, our resurrection with him line. It is, in this way, a sign of our obedience. And not just in the act of obedience, but baptism itself is a sign of the beginning of a new act in your life of obedience to Jesus. He's a much better master than yourself or any earthly king or any celebrity or mood or idea. Now, Jesus was buried, crucified, buried, and raised. And that resurrection part needs to get a little more attention from us. It's a part of the good news. Uh, these things not only are, are, are compatible, baptism and salvation and then obedience, uh, they go together. In fact, apart from the obedience part, you don't have good news. For we need Jesus to do more than take our guilt away, but we need him to make us new. And if he's going to make us new, then we should not be ashamed to call each other to obey the Lord Jesus. And we should not hesitate to call ourselves and to preach to ourselves the need to obey Jesus. It does not undermine grace. It is God's grace that we can. We go under the water with Jesus, but we do not stay under. We go under with Jesus to go on with Jesus. Did you notice in our passage, baptism uh, is surrounded by following Jesus. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, making disciples, 
followers of Jesus, baptizing them. And then he says, uh, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, teaching them to obey, which means instructing them on what Jesus has commanded and compelling, exhorting, calling them to obey what he has commanded. Right there at the end of Mark, he put obedience. And, and that doesn't come with a punch. That comes with, with an encouragement. I'm with you always to the end of the age. In other words, you can do it because you're not alone. I'm with you. So you, you can obey. And that itself is part of the good, the good news. Baptism, not just an act of obedience, but the beginning of a new act in your life of obedience. We go under with Jesus in order to go on with him. Well, we could camp out in this passage here this morning, and for a while that was my plan, and I could preach another sermon on this another day, maybe with the same outline, so let me just hold that in reserve. Uh, We we would get all kinds of little lessons just staring at the passage here. Uh, Obedience is something that is learned uh, teaching, that it's implied with teaching. You have to come into the knowledge of it and grow in the work of obedience. And we see, of course, Jesus patiently teaching his disciples. And it involves learning and, and teaching. Uh, baptism is to Jesus. Well, that's significant. Uh, baptism is all-encompassing. All that I have commanded you to the end of the age. And baptism is doable. Excuse me. Uh, pretend all the sentences that I said that sounded so nice on your ear. It was obedience is, uh, can be learned. Obedience is to Jesus. Obedience is all-encompassing. And obedience is doable. It, it really is. Uh, not perfectly. We're not talking here about obedience without exception. We're talking about obedience in a new direction. And that new direction can mean slow growth for the Christian. It, it does. I feel that. You, you know that. Um, But it is obedience in a a new direction. We do not walk, friends, according to the course of the world anymore. If you're baptized, a member of this church, you must not walk according to the course of this world. Men, come to the retreat and we'll help each other with that. No, we walk according to the calling with which we've been called. And it is God's kindness that that is possible at all. So we could camp out right there, and there's much to say. There's a sermon for you. Uh, we're going to zoom out instead, though. This is the last line in the Gospel of Matthew. Come on. You can't, you can't open any book or movie to the last, the last sentence and just leave it there. So we're going to zoom out, and I'm going to preach this matter of teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you from the sweep of the book. I, I take it. That, that is, this is the last line in the book that the whole book has been leading to this point. Oh, there's a climax in the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the new setting in the big plot, plot arc of the book. But, but that new setting got there somehow. It's what, it's what the book is leading to. That the disciples would be baptized and taught to observe all that, that Jesus commanded. This is a sermon about baptism and obedience. But I want to turn that Uh, uh, at an angle. More than that, it's a sermon, not so much about how committed you should be, it is that, to obeying Jesus, but about how committed Jesus is to your obedience. 
I think if you read the whole book, you would certainly come away with that glorious impression that he is committed to your obedience. He loves you that much. He's gone all the way to make it possible, and he's with you still so that you might. So let's do that. How committed is Jesus to our obedience? I have three answers for you. First, our obedience is why Jesus came to us. It's why he came to us. Yes, to save us from something, but also to save us for something. Now, I'm going to rummage around Matthew. You can if you want. But I told you this would be a shorter sermon. So I'm just going to keep going. Now, we're in one book, so I'll give you some verses. But mostly, the sermon is for listening, and I'd be happy if you listened. But if you ruffle around and I feel like you're not there, I'm just going to ignore you, okay? So um, Matthew's gospel has a certain shape to it. First two chapters, he's born, we figure out where he came from. But then three through ten is his preaching and teaching and then healing to confirm his authority and to point toward the kind of kingdom he's bringing. Chapters 11 through 20 are the story of all the responses to Jesus. In the first 10 chapters, crowds are super excited and Jesus is recruiting disciples. In chapters 11 through 20, mixed responses, confusion, crowds are thinning out. Jesus is telling parables to sort the crowds out and he's teaching his disciples behind closed doors about what the kingdom is really like. They're moving toward Jerusalem the whole way. Chapters 21 to the end of the chapter, to make it this simple, the heat's on, Jesus is rejected, he's been talking about it, we've seen the Pharisees showing up and giving him trouble, but now they're in Jerusalem and they're out to destroy him, and of course by the end of the book, Jesus has been rejected and crucified. Well, in that beginning part of Matthew, we have Jesus coming to preach the arrival of his kingdom. Matthew chapter 3, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching before Jesus, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is baptized, the spirit comes down. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The father said he's driven into the wilderness to be tempted where he succeeds in obeying where Adam did not. And out the other side, Jesus begins his preaching ministry. Says the same thing John did. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in chapter 4, verse 23, we have a bookend. There's a mirror for it uh, in chapter 9, verse 35. Literally about the same sentence. And you know the author is bookending a whole section. So I'm calling that the first division of the book of Matthew. And here's how that goes. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And then in chapter 9, listen, listen again. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. Do you hear it? So those are, those are bookends. And right after those bookends, now Jesus sends his disciples out to do what? To proclaim, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist has proclaimed the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in chapter 10, he sends his disciples out to do the same thing. And they deal with all the responses that, that come. In between those two bookends, you have a summary of Jesus' teaching. At the end of the book, Matthew says, uh, quotes Jesus, teaching them to obey all I've commanded. Well, Matthew's provided a summary for us of all that Jesus commanded in the Sermon on the Mount, it's called. You may have heard about that. Moses delivered a law on the Mount. He went up to Mount Sinai, he delivered the law for God's people. And then he came down after he got it. Now we see, it's very subtle, but Matthew says, and Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he's done teaching, Jesus comes down from the mountain. Jesus is giving a new law. That old one pointed to him. Jesus says things like, you've heard it said, but I'd say to you. And he's not negating the old law, but he's saying, I'm the point of it, and I'm giving you my law. Listen to me. This obedience is to Jesus. And we learn some things in that Sermon on the Mount. I won't get all into the content of it. You can read it. It starts in chapter 5 of Matthew. But we learn a few things that life in this kingdom of heaven is blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And he goes on and on. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they shall be satisfied. This kingdom is attractive. It's like a city on a hill. It certainly exposes sin, but it draws and attracts to its light. It's whole. Life in the kingdom is, is whole. Um, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm saying don't lust in your heart. He, he gets to the internal, not just the external. You've heard, you've heard it said, don't murder. I'm saying don't be angry with your brother. Well, isn't it great news that the kingdom that Jesus brings, and when it's in its fullness, when he comes, there won't be any murder? That's great. Isn't it also great that there won't be any hatred in our hearts? This is good news. Good news of the kingdom. There is a place. There is a Lord under whom life will be like this. We will be like this. No, don't be like the hypocrites. He says over and over again, woe to you hypocrites, the religious leaders of the day who rejected their Messiah and like to work out tricky little ways to obey some but not, but not all of what God said. To kind of have checked the box. Don't live that way. Checking a box with outward obedience, without consideration for the inward matter of the heart. And if you say, well, I can't stop sinning from the heart. Well, maybe you need the grace of God. What's impossible with man is possible with God. Matthew also records Jesus saying that. Now, God has an answer. It's himself. We need the cross, and as we'll get to it, the resurrection. Life in the kingdom is blessed. It's wonderful, happy, without the curse. Life as it should be, it's it's attractive, it's, it's whole. We don't serve two masters, but one there. It's narrow. Satan came after Jesus in the wilderness, so he runs this place down here. And there are false prophets, and there is persecution, and not everyone makes it down this way, for it looks hard, and it is very difficult. It's also solid. In chapter 7, at the end of these, this Sermon on the Mount, we don't build our house on sand, but on a rock. 
And when the waves and the winds come, we don't move. If we're built on Christ, but if you build on the sand, it may look fine for a time, and it may be a really nice place, with all the right features and all the square footage you'd want. But when the wind and the waves come, it topples and it falls and it's gone. Friends, let us build our house on the rock. This is life in the kingdom. Life in the kingdom of heaven cuts with the grain of the nature of humanity. Jesus' vision of the kingdom of heaven isn't, uh, isn't mean because we can't do all the things we want. Do you really think that all the things you want are good for you? You just need to watch the news and look in the mirror on the wrong day. The humans are really bad, really bad at this. And what we want cuts with the grain of what we were made for. Jesus knows what we were made for. And this is why when he preaches, listeners say he's preaching as one with authority. He knows what he's talking about, and he's right, and it resonates with his hearers. Now, for some hearers, it resonates with them, and they reject him because they don't want any part of it because that means they can't have their way, and many will leave. All will flee by the time he's on the cross. Now, our obedience is why Jesus came to us, and we get, we get a sense of his commitment to that in his portrait of life in his kingdom where he is the ruler. Oh, this week, that was yesterday, you know, usually meditating on the sermon on, I have notes around here somewhere. There they are. Meditating on the sermon on Sunday afternoon to keep my head in it. And I hear this across the house. Hey, Carson, can you get a ruler for me? And I said, "Uh, sweetheart, Jesus is with you. You get it? Okay. So my family got it. And it's a and it's a good joke. Okay? So she was she was looking for a ruler and I thought, ooh, Jesus is a good ruler. And she and he's with my wife right now. So think of the imagery of a ruler for a moment. Uh, it's no use having a ruler whose measurements are wrong or wonky or inconsistent. Yeah. So Jesus is a ruler, a king. But he's also the rule, you see. And he's true, and he's consistent, and he's sound, and he's right, and you can trust him. He's a very good master. Trade yourself out for him any day and every day. Our obedience is why Jesus came for us. So we go under with him to go on with him. And our obedience is why Jesus was raised for us. It's why he was raised for us. Where do we get the power to obey? Because it's an intimidating sermon, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is, dealing with all the internal things and the external things. One master, not many masters. Where do we get the power for this kind of obedience? It's fine to get a toy from an adult perspective, for my kids to get toys that don't come with the batteries because you stick the batteries in and they start making noise and working, but the kid knows it's supposed to work. It doesn't really do much good 
certainly with some toys, to have all the instructions and no battery. Or imagine a car with all the instructions in the manual, and it's a great car, and no battery, no power. Where do we get the power for this, even if we're attracted to it, a city on a hill? It's a beautiful way to live. All those mixed reactions from the crowds tell us something about ourselves and, and the rejection of Jerusalem. Of all places that should have, known, should have known, they had all the scriptures to lead them to their Messiah and to this kingdom, and they didn't want that kingdom. <laughs> they didn't want a kingdom where God was king. They wanted a kingdom where they were king. I can relate. Well, the whole book moves, moves very fast. You're working through years at a time, and then it slows down to to weeks and then days and then moments and even seconds, it seems. But it's interesting that the resurrection hardly gets any time. I could read it for you a few passages back from our text, and there wouldn't be much there. He was raised from the dead. It's announced once or twice. But Jesus had been teaching about it all along. So Matthew knew that we knew what it meant. And, and as he was teaching about it, there were allusions to the Old Testament all along. Three times Jesus has spoken about his death and his resurrection. He says, I will be raised after three days, or after three days, then I will be raised. After three days, the Son of Man will be raised. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised according to the Scriptures. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And you might have heard that little line and thought, where does it say he was raised according to the third day? I'm sure it's back there somewhere because the Old Testament is super long. And a lot of things I assume are back there somewhere. Don't think that I know the whole thing inside and out. But having run ahead of you a little bit, it's not anywhere in the Old Testament. It is not the case in the way that we hear it that Jesus was to be crucified, buried, and raised after three days, according to the scriptures. It doesn't say anything about the Messiah being raised after three days. Nevertheless, let me give you a little tour of verses so that you will hear what Matthew is saying and what Jesus was saying. And this will lead us to the power source for the kind of change in life, kingdom life he describes. On the third day, that was a line we would hear if we were to read the story of Abraham. God came to Abraham with a promise of land and blessing and descendants. God's salvation for humanity would come through Abraham. And to test Abraham's faith and to teach him, the Lord told Abraham to take his son Isaac, who was the promised son through whom the promise would come, and he said, it's him, it's Isaac. And then he says, take Isaac and, and offer him up as an offering to me. Kill him on top of that mountain. Your son, your only son, whom you love. And then Isaac carries the wood, which he'll be killed on top of, up the mountain. And we're told, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And the events of that day where the sacrifice was to be made, but then also a resurrection, were made on the third, the third day. So we see Jesus' death portrayed in that story where 
where the father sends his son, his only son, to be killed, and where the son carries the wood that will be his instrument of death up the mountain. And then whereas Isaac is spared at the last minute, our God does not spare his only son. And the language is all very reminiscent and close. Isaac's story is in the background of Jesus' death, but not just that, also Jesus' resurrection. And the author of Hebrews will say that Abraham full expected that in obeying God and killing his son, that God would raise him from the dead. There was already a hope of resurrection back then. And we have that line, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And it was on that third day that all these things transpired, including the rescue of his son from death. And in Exodus, the story of Exodus, where God's people are led out of the wilderness, excuse me, out of bondage and to the mountain where God gives them the law. We read this. Go to the temple, God says to Moses, and consecrate people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. On the third day, Abraham looked up. On the third day, the Lord will appear to the people awaiting three days. We have Jonah in the belly of the fish Three days said he was in hell in his own words. And the Lord delivered him from the fish. And then he goes and preaches to Nineveh. Miraculously, Nineveh repents. It was a very godless nation. He did not want them to repent. They were so godless. God has more grace than the best of us. And it was three days in the belly of that fish. But then, but then, we also have a promise of return for exile, for God's people were greatly disobedient against the Lord in her life in the land. The Lord delivered them through the exodus into the land. After three days, the Lord appeared to them. Over years, he delivered them into the land. And there they sinned against God and worshiped other gods and were cruel to one another. And just as promised, God delivered them to bondage and booted them, vomited them out of the land, we're told. And those are hard and dark years for the people. And even if they return, the problem is they still have sin in their hearts. The clear pattern of the whole Old Testament is simply that all of humanity, even Israel, with all of God's word and law, sins against the Lord and worships other gods and does not prefer the true God to the, to the gods they make up in their own mind. So even if Israel returns to her land, she'll just be vomited out again. There needs to be hope of inward transformation. And we have that. In Isaiah, there is a description of the people of God being killed and laid waste, desolate, removed, forsaken. But then a turn, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, for her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. And in Ezekiel, we have a promise. We have a vision of dry bones, a whole valley full of dry bones. Death. This is the people. And God says, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, 
Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And he watches in his vision. The bones come alive and stand up. The Lord gives life to his people. Hosea describes the same thing, but gives us something of the timing. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he'll raise us up. You can hear the echo. It's how God works. God has kept saying over and over again, on the third day, watch me work. And on the third day, watch me work. It's on the third day that God performs wonders of deliverance. And so it's no surprise that when Jesus is talking about his death, a terrifying matter, he says, and on the third day, I will be raised. Do you hear it now? On the third day, I will be raised. But it's not the Messiah who is promised to be raised on the third day in the Old Testament. It's the people who are given new life from nothing. You can't get more dead than a valley of dry bones. So I don't care what your past is or what you've done in the last day or what thought you've thought in the last hour. God can work the miracle of making you new. And it's not just that he can take your sins away. That's great news. But he can give you a new heart that beats for him. Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. A heart that can obey. Not perfectly, but that obeys in a new direction. That has a new master. That recognizes Jesus as Lord. That is not only attracted to this kingdom, but attracted to the one who calls us to obey him. Our obedience is why Jesus came to us, and it's why he was raised for us. I hope that you're hearing. The resurrection of Jesus is not just a miracle before our eyes, but it's a miracle in and for our very hearts. Therefore, anyone in, is, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Do you hear it? It's how we began the service. It takes great power to create from nothing, and it's exactly what God does in making a Christian. Doesn't matter if you grew up in a believing home. Praise God for that. You could just well have wandered off the path and rejected all of it. In fact, Jesus talks about those who are twice a son of hell. They're raised to be very obedient, and they miss the point, and they're very good at disobedience afterwards because they know how to make it look good on the outside while being sneaky on the inside. Now, God makes us wholly new. And Jesus is that committed to our obedience that he went all the way to make our obedience possible. And that's why we go under, that we might go on in obedience with him. Now, third, our obedience is why he remains with us. And this brings us back to our passage in that last verse. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You see, Jesus doesn't tell you, obey me, without insisting first on his authority to call you into his obedience, and without offering you the assurance that he will never, ever leave you in your walk of obedience. 
And it's not just I'm with you in spirit, like we might say if we have to miss a baby shower or something. I'll be with you in spirit. It means I'm thinking of you. Jesus does more than that. He sends his spirit to save, to transform into your hearts. Jesus really is with you, Christian. And friend, if you're here this morning and obedience to Jesus is not how you've thought of Christianity, you go to church and you, you think of it as rules and being good so you're good enough when you meet God, you won't be good enough by the time you meet God. This is personal. It's personal for Jesus and it's personal for those whom he saves. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Impossible. Apart from his death and resurrection, which means he can take your sins away and give you new life so that you can obey. And as Matthew says, bear the fruit in keeping with repentance. Now the spirit was over the, the chaos at creation and hovering over the waters in Noah's flood and appeared at Jesus' baptism. And now in Acts chapter 2, which we read a bit of ahead of the testimonies, we see a portrait of the church. The word was preached and those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And you can see it in this portrait of a local church. And I can see it in this portrait of a local church. And it's important that we tend to that portrait, which is precisely what we do in baptism. And that's not just for me. It's not just for Jason who will baptize in a moment. It's not just for your elders. It's the whole church's job. So this is all of us this morning witnessing, as we heard their testimonies, and witnessing to their vows in the baptismal tub and then welcoming them into the church, counting them among ourselves. Now, Christian, we think obedience to Jesus is great and we do not hesitate to talk about it. And we do not hesitate to call one another to it. For there is no one whom we would rather serve. We have a very great ruler in Jesus. Now let us pray to him now. Oh, Father, we give you thanks for this passage at the end of Matthew. That you haven't left off the matter of obedience in our salvation that you've given us new hearts that show up here to hear what we're commanded to do. And you actually give us the Spirit so that we might obey. We thank you that it's possible and we give you praise for that for it's of your grace when we obey. We do not obey from our own strength, but in the strength that you give. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.